The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Our scripture text this morning is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, once again, and from the 14th verse. John chapter 1. In verse 14, it begins, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Father, already we have feasted at your table and been blessed by the singing of these carols by prayer. Now we pray your blessing as we feed from your word. Bless our pastor as he glorifies you by opening it to us for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. John 1, 14 through 18. I'm going to focus mostly on uh, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. I want to consider those three phrases. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. These truths give us reason for joy at Christmas time. A truth that no quarantine can overcome, a joy that no amount of suffering can extinguish, a joy that no earthly pleasure can replace or exceed. So don't be overwhelmed by momentary afflictions or even distracted by fleeting pleasures of life, what we have here in God's word, this reality to come back to again and again, this will prove to be the joy, the ultimate reality that, that will never fade away. It'll never, this truth will never, ever let you down. We have reason for great joy, and it's all because the Word became flesh. 
this is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in humble surroundings in Bethlehem. The second person of the Trinity did not come into being at the time of his birth. For John says, in the beginning was the Word. And now in verse 14, he says, this Word became flesh. God the Son, the Word, did not come into existence through this human birth in Bethlehem. But he did come into existence as a human being. In addition to already existing eternally as a divine being. It's, it's mysterious. It's incredible. It's hard to wrap our minds around this truth. God, he humbled himself. And when we think of God humbling himself, we might wrongly, wrongly think that this was by subtraction. This was a matter of him losing some of his deity. But in fact, the truth is God humbled himself not by subtraction, but by addition. The word became. He added. He took on flesh. God the Son, an eternal being, fully God, forever existing, took on flesh and dwelt. He tabernacled among us. He humbled himself by addition. He didn't become less God, but instead he took on flesh. Paul in Philippians 2 says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? How did he empty himself? How did he humble himself? By losing some of his divinity? No. He emptied himself by addition, by putting something on, by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself not only in becoming fully human, but as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's incredible to to think on this truth. The Son of God, the eternal Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, the one through whom all things were made, the one who is life, the one who gives light, He became flesh and dwelt among us. And this is an important truth for you to know as a Christian. This doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. A truth concerning this that will keep you from error. From the belief of many heretical cults. The doctrine, the biblical doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. Is that the Son of God became human in the fullest sense without losing any of his divinity. Jesus was fully God and 
fully man. He was not part God and part man. He was not less God and not really man. He did not cheat in his sinless life by downloading or accessing some of his divinity when he needed it. As a two-month-old baby, he wasn't all-knowing. He didn't speak fluent Aramaic. No, he, he had to learn to speak, just like you. He had to study and memorize God's word. He was fully man. And yet, somehow, mysteriously, incomprehensibly, he was fully God. Here's how Derek Thomas explains this great mystery to us. The incarnation was not by subtraction, it was by addition. God is immutable. God cannot change. And the incarnation cannot involve a change in the being of God. He added to himself something that he didn't have before. That is human nature. But that human nature is not a divinized human nature. Nor is the divine nature a humanized divine nature. They are two separate natures. So there is no change whatsoever in the divine nature. Okay. You with me? No. Does it make your brain hurt? Yes. Can we fully comprehend this? No. It's a mystery. So don't don't be too worried. I mean, we should God wants us to know him. So don't be lazy. But can we comprehend this fully? No. And maybe the best that we can do is simply to state what Scripture reveals. And to know why these truths are important. And to know what is error and that those errors have terrible consequences. Scripture reveals that Jesus was fully man. And this is important because if he were not fully man, then he could not be our human representative who took the penalty for our sins. So he must be fully man. He could not be our representative without cheating, who who without cheating did what Adam, think of Adam, our first representative, and what he failed to do. So Jesus must be, he is referred to as that second Adam. He had to be fully human. For by faith in Jesus, his obedience, his perfect obedience becomes our obedience. So he must do this as a man. His sinless righteousness is counted as ours. And in Christ, we are legally declared by God to be righteous. Scripture reveals also that that Jesus was fully God. He claimed to be God. I am the self-existent, eternal God who was before all things. And he proved this through his miracles and most of all by his resurrection from the dead. And the scriptures also tell us that the very nature of God's being is that he is immutable. Immutable. In other words, there is no mutation in God. God in his nature 
cannot change. So we have these truths from Scripture. How we make them fit is very difficult. But that they are true is what God's Word reveals. Here's something that may help your aching brain. A question that may bring you some assurance. Ask yourself, how can the finite fully grasp the infinite? How can a finite person such as myself grasp the infinite nature and beauty of God? That I am incapable of this and by nature limited in fully understanding this mystery is not only reasonable, but is consistent with the greatness and limitless nature of God. We may as finite beings understand in part, and God intends for us to do so, revealing himself in creation and in God's word. But God who is infinite is beyond our full understanding. The psalmist declares such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And Paul, in worshipful wonder, says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. And that we cannot fully comprehend this mystery. This is very good news. What a joyful thought it is that we will forever be discovering marvelous and beautiful realizations of God that drop us to our knees in awe-filled wonder and worship. How boring, think of it, how boring would eternity be if at some point we fully knew and then from then on nothing new. No new discovery, no new excitement and wonder, just the same old thing, a God we can be accustomed to forever and ever and ever and ever. So it's very good. It's a very good thing that we cannot fully grasp God. And this truth should cause you to seek after God. To want to learn more and more about him. To continually grow in your understanding and appreciation and awe of him. With full confidence that there will be something else about him that satisfies you tomorrow. And then the next day. And the next day. So heaven is going to be wonderful and glorious and certainly not boring because God is infinite. You'll love seeing his beauty the next day. You'll be blown away another day. And this joy of discovery and learning will continue forever because God is limitless. He's beyond you. You'll never get bored because he alone is able to satisfy you forever. And if people dread the thought of heaven, and they do because they have wrong a wrong concept of heaven is because they wrongly think it will be boring. It's because they don't rightly understand that God is the source of beauty, that all of the discoveries of life that give us 
a sense of purpose and excitement that these are but small, think of it, these things that you enjoy in life, that excite you, that give you pleasure. These are gifts of God to you that just give you, he wants you to have a taste a ta- that feeling is a taste of what you will ultimately, and un- in an unending sense, experience in Him. You get bored with things because you get accustomed to them. You're, they're exciting at first, but then eventually they're not the same. And this will never, ever occur with God. Heaven boring This is a sad lie of Satan because the reality of every joy is its newness. The discovery, the first experience, the beholding of what is beautiful. So be comforted as a Christian that your joy is unending because the object of your joy is beyond your full comprehension. You will forever be discovering and experiencing beautiful truths concerning God. God reveals himself in his word, in the scriptures, and in the word, in the person of Jesus. He wants us to know him. And Jesus came to reveal, to make God known to us. God's word declares this truth in Colossians 2.9. In him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Fullness of deity, not part deity, not lesser deity, but fullness of deity dwells bodily. When Jesus took on flesh, he gained a human body which enabled him to suffer death for us. And Jesus also possessed, think of it, Jesus also possessed a human mind. And heart. He felt all that we feel, including sorrow and joy, weariness and temptation. And because of this, he is able to sympathize with us in our trials. He knows what it is to be human because he was human. Jesus lived a human life in this world, he was born. He grew up as a boy. He learned to be a carpenter. He had friends and neighbors. He paid taxes, yes. He was subject to the governing authorities, yes. So because he is truly human, he is also an example for us to follow. Jesus came to die to sympathize with us, and to show us how to live. And it's beyond us to grasp the truth that one person can be both God and man, but the Bible shows that Jesus possessed two distinct natures, one divine, one human, without any mingling or confusion between the two. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies, thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. What does this say about God's desire for our salvation? That he actually stepped into a world and became one of us. 
It shows the value of every human life that we would be made in the image of God and that he would send his own son to become a man so that we might become in him sons and daughters of God. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. More literally in the Greek, he, the word tabernacled among us. And in saying this, John wants us to think back to the Exodus when God dwelt among the Israelites in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, this canvas structure about 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. The tabernacle where there were three areas. The outer courtyard where the priests made sacrifices and washed before entering. The holy place. An outer room that housed the golden candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And then the the inner room, the holy of holies that contained the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt. So much symbolism of spiritual realities and especially concerning Jesus. Jesus who came as God's true tabernacle. I want to consider a few of these spiritual realities. First, the tabernacle was for a journey through the wilderness. It was not a permanent home. And this was true of Jesus as well. The world was not his true home. Jesus was passing through on the way to a better home. He lived as a pilgrim saying, foxes have holes Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This was true for Jesus, and we need to realize it's also true for us. We may be devoted to our nation and its history. We may be very nostalgic, longing for the good old days. We may wrongly apply some prophetic pride that causes us to hang on too tightly to the past. But in Christ, our allegiances have changed. And this is good news because through our union to Christ, there is a great realization that our true home, we see so many changes going on around us that grieve us. But our true home can never change. Yes, keep fighting for what is right and just for the sake of God and His glory. But fight with the knowledge that you can never lose what will ultimately last. He alone is our home. And so we can sing, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Along with Christ, we no longer belong to this present desert world, but we pass through it to a promised land, just as Israel passed through the wilderness. Secondly, the tabernacle was humble in appearance. It did not compare to the pyramids of Egypt or the ziggurats of Babylon. No, the temple was made of canvas hides. On the outside, no artistry. 
Nothing special to see. And the same is true of Jesus. During Christmas we sing, Hark the herald angels sing. And in, in it the line, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. His eternal beauty was veiled. On the outside we see nothing special, nothing that would attract us to him. Concerning Jesus, Isaiah, the prophet, said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. A.W. Pink wrote that to the unbelieving gaze of Israel, he had no form nor comeliness. And when they beheld him, their unanointed eyes saw in him no beauty that they should desire him. Jesus didn't attract people by his outward appearance. But none is more glorious than he. A glory of humble obedience to do the will of his Father. And at the end of his earthly ministry, on the night of his arrest, Jesus prayed to his Father, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Humble glory of an obedient life. And we too can lead glorious lives. We may not look like much by earthly standards, speaking for myself, no offense, but oh, can we shine. We can shine his glory in simple, humble faith that conforms us into his image. An image where the world can see his glory in our lives. A third comparison to the tabernacle is that it was the center of Israel's camp. The various tribes of Israel, they camped around the tabernacle with the the Lord at the center. James Boyce writes that this is highly significant in reference to Jesus Christ, for he is the center of the Christian encampment. He is our gathering place. Jesus is not only the reason for the season... He is the reason. He is at the center of everything that we do as a church. Everything that we believe. He is at the center of our hope. For God has tabernacled with us. In Jesus Christ, God is at the center. He is with us. Especially as we partake at the table. He is with us in a very special way. And we have seen his glory. The tabernacle was also called the tent of meeting. It was the place where people met with God and saw the Shekinah glory cloud, the shining presence of God. And in saying we have, when John says we have seen his glory, John relates this Old Testament picture to the coming of Christ, this first coming of Christ dwelling among us. John wants us to see and behold the glory of Jesus. And I want to consider three ways. First is the glory of his person. John in verse 15 writes that John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of 
whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John the Baptist. Think of it. John the Baptist was an amazing spiritual leader. He was a great person. In fact, Jesus said that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And as great as he was, he insisted that Jesus was far more glorious in his person. John, whose birth was announced by an angel saying he will be great before the Lord. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. John, the one whose message called Israel to repent and be baptized. John, a man of great courage and character who confronted hypocrites, even the wicked King Herod. What an honor it would be to follow such a great spiritual leader. And yet John insists that he was not the one that we should seek after, saying, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Even though John was born before Jesus and began his ministry first, he says that Jesus is a higher spiritual leader because of the glory of his person. And the glory of his person is recognized in that John points to the eternal pre-existence of Jesus saying he was before me. Jesus is greatest because he is God. It is right, it's rightly said that the best of men are men at best. Great human leaders will at some point let you down. Even John the Baptist in prison briefly doubted Jesus. But Jesus, though fully man, is no mere man. He is without flaw. He is without limitation. And as great as some leaders may be, they will fail simply Because of death, John's ministry ended in death, executed by Herod. But Jesus' ministry did not come to an end at his death, for he rose from the dead and he lives forever to be the unique Savior that we can always fully trust. So Jesus is glorious in his person and Jesus is also glorious in the provision that only he can give. In verse 16, John says, And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. I love that phrase. Grace upon grace. There is a fullness in Christ. No matter what you face in life, there is never a circumstance that is beyond his ability to provide. What we receive, it may not be what we want. But what we receive from him will ultimately work for our good and our eternal joy. He is glorious in his provision that only he can provide. When the wine ran out at the wedding, Jesus had the fullness to provide the very best. When he met a woman shamed by her sin, Jesus was able to provide new life. When he came across a man who had been lame for 38 years, Jesus had the power to heal. When the people were hungry, he satisfied thousands from just a few loaves and a couple of fish. 
he gave sight to a man who didn't know what it was to see. And when Jesus' friend was sick and died, he brought him back to life. Jesus has the fullness to do all of these miracles recorded in the Gospel of John. And in his fullness, he can provide for you in all of your needs as well. He is the infinite and almighty God who in his fullness has an inexhaustible supply of love for us. Grace upon grace. There is grace after grace after grace after grace. And oh, when we've felt stuck and can't see a possible way out, I remember that I've felt this way before. And God surprised me with grace. And I look to that grace in the past and I can trust that he will give me grace for whatever that is in the future. Maybe again, not, not what I hope for, but in retrospect, um, better than I would have hoped for. For those who are in Christ, there is a never-ending provision of grace. We received his grace in salvation, and there's always another grace ready to be given. And different kinds of grace, custom-designed grace for your particular need. William Barclay writes this, We need one grace in the days of prosperity and another in the days of adversity. We need one grace in the sunlit days of youth and another when the shadows of age begin to lengthen. The church needs one grace in the days of persecution and another when the days of acceptance have come. We need one grace when we feel that we're on top of things and another when we are depressed and discouraged and near to despair. Oh, that we crave the grace that Jesus gives, that we not be content with where we're at, but instead be a people who are always hungry for more. Grace Upon grace. Jesus has more grace ready for you. And maybe instead of praying for improved circumstances, we should pray for more of Jesus. That we be filled with his love so that we might be vessels of his grace to others. Kent Hughes writes When grace flows into one's life, grace also begins to flow out. As the grace you receive flows out to others, more grace will come, and then more grace, and then even more grace. So we see his glory in his person, and in his provision, and in God's revelation to us. John tells us in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. All throughout the Old Testament, there are people who want to see, who want to know God, but God could not be seen. Solomon said that God dwelt in thick darkness. Elijah heard only a still, small voice. Abraham dealt with angels and saw God as a smoking fire pot. Moses 
had the most intimate dealings with God as he stood before the burning bush. And other times this divine, his divine light shining on his face. And yet he longed to see God saying, please show me your glory. And what was God's reply? You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So Jesus came. Jesus provided the perfect revelation of God that men could see and receive. And John describes him as the only God who is at the Father's side. Because Jesus is very God of very God, one in the divine trinity. Because Jesus has an intimate relationship with God the Father, he alone is the perfect revelation. Not John the Baptist, not Moses, not some prophet, not some pope or leader. Only Jesus. Only Jesus, who is the only God who is at the Father's side. No one else can show you God. Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to reveal God to us. He has made Him known. He exegetes the Father. He interprets and explains and exposits God to us. So if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what He intends for the world, then we must look to and study Jesus. This is why John calls Jesus the Word. God speaks most plainly and powerfully in Him. He is our greatest need. He is what you should seek and the one you should point others to. So this Christmas, as we we enjoy our traditions, as we enjoy our food, looking forward to that, and our gifts, yes, gifts are great, and the company of family and friends, love Christmas. Don't starve yourself. Don't deprive your children of the greatest gift. The greatest by far. For only the glory of God can satisfy you forever. Don't don't settle. Enjoy, but don't settle for shiny and fun things that won't last. Enjoy them. Have fun. But understand that they will lose their newness. They'll eventually be out of date or break or you'll move on to something else. Only the glory of God can satisfy you forever. And Jesus alone, in his person, in his provision, and as the revelation of God, only he will satisfy you and your friends and your family forever. If you trust in him, you will not only see his glory, but you will partake of his grace and truth. And from his fullness, there will be grace upon grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We praise you and are filled with hope and joy at the thought of Jesus. Jesus, the only God who is at your side, Father. Jesus, whose glory we see in his person, unlike any other, the God-man. The one who humbled himself by becoming one of us. Fully human. Able to be our substitute. 
and therefore able to die in our place so that we might be forgiven, so we might be declared righteous, reconciled to you, Father. Jesus, whose glory we see in his gracious provision, knowing perfectly each need, and who will forever care for us and bless us. Jesus, whose glory perfectly allows us to know you, Father, you who alone can satisfy us forever. Oh, let us take joy in you. Thank you for the many blessings of this life, for traditions and food and gifts and family and friends. Thank you for all of these small tastes of joy that point us to you. May we live for your glory. May we give thanks in all things. May we not allow any circumstance to rob us of the joy that you intend for us, that we might glorify you and share your grace to others. Lord, thank you for this church, for their graciousness, their kindness to me and my family over the years. Help me in this Help me in this role of pastor, along with the elders and deacons. Lord, that we might serve and encourage and bless for the sake of your glory, for the sake of their joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.